For a time, we tried to contact them by radio, but no response. Then they attacked a town. A small town, I'll admit, but nevertheless a town of people. People who died. Ephemeral is a production of iHeart 3D Audio. For full exposure, listen with headphones. Every so often, an artist comes along who challenges the core tenets of their medium, raising questions like, is there such a thing as objective quality in art? What makes something good art or bad art? And who's to tell the difference? One such figure was director Edward D. Wood Jr., a legend of genre films from the 1950s and 60s. Some would say he's the worst director of all time. Others might label Ed Wood as a groundbreaking visionary who did things no other Hollywood contemporary could do. Some are still not sure what to think. Today, ephemeral producer Trevor Young takes us on a journey through Wood's filmography and wades into the decades-old debate on the director's unique output. It was the year 1980. Hollywood filmmaking was at an all-time high. With releases that year, including The Shining. I said, I'm not going to hurt you. I'm just going to bash your brains. And Star Wars, The Empire Strikes Back. He told me you killed him. No, I am your father. But despite the recent abundance of fantastic cinema, film critic brothers Harry and Michael Medved decided they would highlight something else. The worst of the worst in film. So that year, the Medved brothers published a book called The Golden Turkey Awards, featuring winners for categories like Worst Performance by a Politician. The hell you can't. You tell me here now, or I'll drag you up before the Senate and you'll tell me there. And Most Embarrassing Movie Debut. How could you, a Roman magistrate, believe that perjurer? A sniveling little toady. Look at him fawning on Linus, waiting for his reward. The worst director was Edward D. Wood Jr. And the worst film was Wood's 1959 sci-fi film, Plan 9 from Outer Space. Greetings, my friend. We are all interested in the future, for that is where you and I are going to spend the rest of our lives. And remember, my friend, future events such as these will affect you in the future. But despite being labeled as the worst director and having the worst film of all time, Ed Wood is insanely popular even today. His films are still played in indie theaters around the country, and they appear regularly on TV. Tim Burton directed a biopic about Wood in 1994, aptly called Ed Wood, starring Johnny Depp. Well, Mr. Weiss, look no further. I'm your man. I work fast and I'm a deal. I write and direct, and I'm good. I just did a play in Hollywood, and Victor Crowley himself praised its realism. And on the internet, you'll find legions of Wood fans dedicated to talking about his work or collecting Ed Wood ephemera. I myself find his work inspirational because he did so much with so little. He had so many things against him, but he was able to create films that tens of thousands or hundreds of thousands of people saw in their initial release, not even counting the revival of them later. So he's a figure whose work entertains, whose work is thought-provoking, 
and who inspires people to create today. What more could you ask for for a legacy? My name is Bill Shute, poet and professor of English at San Antonio College, and I wrote the introduction to the new book by Ed Wood Jr., When the Topic is Sex, a 545-page collection of Wood's nonfiction articles for 1970s adult magazines, published by Bear Manor Media. As you can tell, Bill adores Ed Wood. I discovered Ed Wood's work in the late 60s or early 1970s as a child, watching low-budget films and horror films on UHF television and independent TV stations. The films I saw on television prior to any Ed Wood revival were, of course, Bride of the Monster and Plan 9 from Outer Space. And I certainly knew that those were unique works. I probably saw them at least a half dozen times on television. So when Ed Wood started getting attention in the late 70s, I was very excited to see more of his films and to learn more about him. Bill cites those two films, Bride of the Monster and Plan 9 from Outer Space, as his favorites by Ed Wood. In Plan 9, there was just something special almost dreamlike about that film. It puts you almost in an alternate state of consciousness. People turning south from the freeway were startled when they saw three flying saucers high over Hollywood Boulevard. Bride of the Monster was a more conventional film than Plan 9 from Outer Space, but that had some amazing sequences in it. I have no home like Bela Lugosi's soliloquy where he talks about, I have no home. I think that moved me to tears as a child when I saw that on television. Living like an animal. The jungle is my home. That I will show the world that I can be its master. So just from being introduced to those films, I knew uh, Edward D. Wood Jr. was someone I wanted to see more of and know more about. Those are glowing reviews you might not expect for someone commonly regarded as the worst director of all time. So what's going on here? Who is Ed Wood really? And how did the director of low-budget sci-fi films from the 1950s become such a cult phenomenon? Well, let's start by learning a little bit about Wood's background. Well, he was from uh, Poughkeepsie, New York, which is upstate. After serving in the Marine Corps in World War II, he went to Hollywood, as so many people did, and he had some background in drama. He'd written a play, Casual Company. Do you believe in ghosts? Nah, Tommy. That's just kitty spook stories. Once you're dead, stay dead. I don't know, Bill. Out on that battlefield today, I saw this woman in, dressed in white floating above the dunes. Or maybe it was just fatigue, or maybe it's the indignities of war, or maybe it's something else. He went to Hollywood and did sort of day work around the studios, and he started a production company in 
1947 or 1948 with a man named Crawford John Thomas. They made a short silent called Crossroads of Laredo, which has survived. And it looks very much like a low-budget sound western of the early 30s or silent from the late 20s. Wood grew up on that kind of thing, and he used a lot of supporting players who had been in low-budget independent westerns in his films throughout his career. He also made some commercials, which are rather novel. He and Crawford Thomas came up with an idea for doing little dramatic commercials that did not actually have the name of the sponsor. Just one thing before you shoot. Will you bury me with my boots on? Okay, Tex. Say, where'd you get them boots? That's mighty fine looking footwear. Why, I got these at the best shoe store in town. And at a mighty fair price, too. Well, by golly. How about taking me down to that shoe store right now? It would be like an ad for jewelry. And it would be about a diamond or whatever. And the local sponsor would cut in their name to this. And now we will sail away. And we will be the only ones to know where that fine treasure chest of jewelry is buried. One day we'll come back and dig it up and live like queens. Right, Captain Kitty. That chest is chucked full of the most beautiful jewelry in all the world. Sure hope that store never runs out of that fine stock. And he made some other short films, and he made some pilots for television, things that were aired locally, industrial film work, the usual things that someone does as they're working their way into the lower rung of independent film and genre filmmaking. Take it easy, old-timer. I'll get a doctor. Uh, ain't no use. Time for me to cash in my chips. Edward wrote and co-wrote some westerns during this period for, again, an independent, low-budget film cowboy by the name of Johnny Carpenter. And Carpenter later appeared in Edward Films. They had a long relationship. No, Timer, I'm not writing. I'm going to stay here and find out what's going on at the Double D Ranch. Around this time, Ed Wood met Bella Lugosi, known best for his iconic role as Dracula in the 1931 film of the same name. I am Dracula. Listen to them, children of the night. What music they make. Lugosi was one of Wood's childhood heroes, so Wood befriended him and asked Lugosi to star in one of his movies. At the time, Lugosi was older and mostly out of work, so he agreed. And with Lugosi on board, Ed Wood was able to secure funding for his first feature film in 1953, Glenn or Glenda. Man's constant groping of things unknown, drawing from the endless reaches of time, brings to light many startling things. His first film, Glen or Glenda, made for the producer George Weiss, 
Weiss had previously released a film called Test Tube Babies that he had produced. But Dr. Wright, has there been much work done in this artificial insemination field? I mean, is it just a theoretical thing or has it been done before? A tremendous amount of work has been done in artificial insemination, Mrs. Bennett. I'll admit that up to the past few years, a great majority of it has been done with livestock. And in a sense, Glenn or Glenda was mining the same vein as that, a kind of salacious, exploitative uh, title. And Glenn or Glenda was originally conceived as a film about Christine Jorgensen, who had had a sex change operation and was in the news at the time. She did not care to work with George Weiss on a film. So Ed Wood and Weiss came up with the concept of dealing with a cross-dressing individual. He dares to enter the street dressed in the clothes he so much desires to wear. Glenn is engaged to be married to Barbara. Glenn's problem is a deep one, but he must tell her soon. She's begun to notice things. And of course, Ed Wood was a person who dressed in women's clothing in his own life. Anyone who has seen the 1994 Tim Burton film, Ed Wood, is likely familiar with this fact. I like to dress in women's clothing. You a fruit? No, not at all. I love women. Wearing their clothes makes me feel closer to them. You're not a fruit. No, I'm all men. I even fought in WW2. Of course, I was wearing women's undergarments under my uniform. One of Ed Wood's most interesting quirks was his subversive and public desire to wear women's clothing what today we might call drag. Back then, they might have used the outdated and somewhat derogatory term transvestite. Nature makes mistakes. It's proven every day. This person is a transvestite, a man who is more comfortable wearing girls' clothes. The term transvestite is the name given by medical science to those persons who wear the clothing of the opposite sex. Many a transvestite actually wishes to be the opposite sex. The title of this can only be labeled Behind Locked Doors. Give this man satin undies, a dress, a sweater, and a skirt, or even the lounging outfit he has on, and he's the happiest individual in the world. He can work better, think better, he can play better, and he can be more of a credit to his community and his government because he is happy. So he basically wrote a film that dealt with that, but at the same time dealt with the sex change element because of Christine Jorgensen. A lot of people who see Glenn or Glenda feel that it's kind of schizophrenic in the sense that cross-dressing and sex change are kind of not the same thing at all. But in a way, the film really explores gender identity and gender fluidity which of course can't be narrowed down to a couple of simple terms or a couple of simple categories. But Glenn or Glenda was his first feature film as a director, and in my opinion, if he never made anything else, he would still be remembered well just for that film. In the Ed Wood fandom, there are some interesting theories as to where Ed's cross-dressing originated. So supposedly Ed's mom wanted a girl. And as a young kid dressed Ed in girls' clothing, others say that one of his favorite things as a young child was a soft fur 
sweater. I don't know if it was an Angora sweater or something soft and furry that kind of set that pattern for that fetish for the rest of his life, for his fetish for Angora. But that was a part of him. My name is Bob Blackburn. I was a friend of uh, Ed Wood's widow, Kathy Wood, and technically I am one of her heirs, which makes me one of Ed Wood's heirs. Bob has a ton of insight into the personal lives of Ed and Kathy Wood. He says that before Kathy, Ed had a girlfriend named Dolores Fuller, who actually starred in Glen or Glenda. Those fingernails have got to go. You know, I didn't realize they're as long as they are. My goodness, they're almost as long as mine. Maybe even prettier. We'll have to paint them sometime just for the fun of it. We'll trim them. That's for sure. The two of them fell in love and they moved in together. And she actually had a couple of kids from a previous marriage, so it was kind of a messy situation. Kind of up until Doris found out that Ed was wearing her Angora sweaters. She didn't know if Ed might be gay, might be a pervert. I mean, in her mind, he was a pervert. Therefore, she just, she kicked him out. But then, Wood met Kathy O'Hara. The night that they actually met and got together, she went home with him to his apartment because did the old, you know, hey, you want to see my scrapbooks? And he really did have scrapbooks of his films and stuff like that. And she went in to use his bathroom, and she noticed there was, like, women's lingerie hanging off the, the shower pole. And so, you know, she thought, oh, God, he's got a girlfriend. So she comes out, and she says, hey, I, I, do you have a girlfriend? I, you know, I kind of don't want to get too far along here if I'm going to get in somebody's way. So Ed confided the first night to Kathy, the first night that they actually met, that he liked to sometimes wear women's clothing. Do you, if you have a problem with it, well, you know, here's your chance to walk out the door and whatever. And she thought about it. And here's a woman from provincial Canada, Vancouver. She'd been a corporate secretary. I've seen a little bit of the world, if you can call Canada and Toronto, New York, and then L.A., a little bit of the world. And she accepted it, and she accepted it for the rest of their time together. She wasn't maybe always happy with it, because he kind of flaunted it from time to time. In the 1950s, Glenner Glenda raised a lot of questions about Ed's sexuality. I asked Bob for his take on the matter, and to clear it up for us. He was not gay. He was not trans. And it's kind of interesting. The gay community kind of has him as a bit of an icon so many of his friends, Paul Marco, Criswell, other people in his circle of friends were gay. Because he himself was such an outsider, he attracted outsiders who knew that he would be a steadfast friend. And he had his alter ego named Shirley. Ed wasn't averse to going out in public as Shirley. Kathy told me stories that they would go to Hollywood parties where there would be some stars all dressed in drag, and they'd be talking about their big, nice, long gloves and their first stoles and, you know, the hem and their stockings and whatnot. So, I mean, Eddie was really a pioneer, especially because in the 50s and early 60s, you could get arrested for that here in California, in Los Angeles. But by the mid-late 60s, it became legal, and he mentions that in some of these articles about transvestism, and he'll say, well, now that California has legalized it, you'll see a lot more men being dressed as women walking, parading around the streets of Hollywood, which is what he did. According to Bill Shute, 
That struggle for acceptance is explored in a surprisingly well and nuanced way in Glen or Glenda. One thing that makes Glen or Glenda quite different from the sex exploitation films of the late 40s and 1950s is that it doesn't have much of a sleaze factor to it. And the empathy that it has for the subject is unique. And again, to have the director himself play the lead character and do a good portion of the film in drag himself is an amazing accomplishment for 1953. I was put in jail recently. Why? Because I, a man, was caught on the street wearing women's clothing. This was my fourth arrest for the same act. In life, I must continue wearing them. Therefore, it would only be a matter of time until my next arrest. This is the only way. Let my body rest in death forever in the things I cannot wear in life. Why are you taking that gun? Why, well, I might be walking down a dark street and a robber might jump at me. I want to be protected. I just paid a thousand dollars bail because you carried one of those things tonight. Well, sister, that was very sisterly of you. You know that gun is jailbait. Ed Wood's next feature film, 1954's Jailbait, was a little different. It was about a young man who gets involved with a dangerous criminal resulting in a robbery gone horribly wrong. What makes you think you can get away with it? Let us worry about that, but... I'm through for the night, Mac. I'll be on my... <laughs> Most of Ed Wood's films are the Ed Wood attempt to work in an existing genre. And of course, this would be the crime film. It's certainly a novel film. The ending of it is unexpected. It's a strange film in that the soundtrack, the kind of flamenco guitar and keyboard soundtrack is kind of off-putting. And also so much of the film is murky and dark and either shooting at night or looking like uh, it's shot at night that it creates a kind of dreamlike feel to it. And it's a unique product. I've probably watched it 15 or 20 times over the years, and I always find it fascinating. Had I seen that on a double bill in 1954 or 55, I would have thought it was a satisfying and different kind of experience. I think it definitely succeeded. And while it has a lot of the tropes we associate with uh, Ed Wood, on its own, it's an interesting, low-budget uh, crime film, and it works on that level. Face it, Vic. You're as finished as the kid is. I wasn't in on your job. I'm not in trouble. Why should I stick around and take what's left? What is left? A has-been with a gun. A has-been? Baby, I've only just begun. I didn't set you up in all this luxury just to have you walk out on me. I pulled you out of that Main Street dive and made something out of you. No, you're not going to walk out on me. Try it, and I swear you'll never walk out on anyone again. So if they do pick me up, it's only a robbery rap. 
I didn't kill that cop. Nobody will know about the kid there. Next up was one of Bill's favorites, Bride of the Monster in 1955. What are you doing to me? You will be soon as big as a giant. The strength of 20 men. Or, like all the others, dead. That was a film that was shown a lot on television when I was young. It's a classic, independent, low-budget horror film. I think it's very much rooted in the Bela Lugosi monogram films of the early 40s. And I'm sure Ed Wood loved those films because it's very much like them, and it's like the roles that Lugosi played in those films. They were like a step above what Ed Wood was making in terms of budget, but they were still very low-budget, quickie films. I'm really happy that he had the opportunity to do a starring vehicle for Bela Lugosi where he could be at his best. I'm, I'm Dr. Eric Vornov. You had a severe shock. How did I get here? Oh, that's not important for the moment. What you need now is rest. Rest. He was clearly a friend and supporter and fan of Bela Lugosi, and I'm sure it made Wood extremely happy to give him a vehicle where he could do his thing. If you look at the trailers for that film, whoever wrote the copy refers to Lugosi as the screen's master of the weird. So he knew what a gift he had with Bela Lugosi. He created a great low-budget laboratory. And of course, all you need is the flashing lights and some beakers. It was a classic mad doctor's laboratory. And of course, you had the amazing Tor Johnson. Thor Johnson was a Swedish wrestler and actor who Wood discovered and befriended. At six foot three and over 400 pounds, Johnson's hulking figure made him perfect for the monster roles in Wood's movies. So you had a monster in it, you had a mad doctor in it, you had murky, lightning flashing, and all the kind of set pieces that you would need for a horror film. Now, it had some quirky elements to it. It also had the earnestness that you see in some of the Ed Wood films, where he had a message. He managed to shoehorn in some of his philosophical gropings into the dialogue and into the themes, and he certainly did that with Bride of the Monster. 20 years ago, I was banned from my homeland, parted from my wife and son, never to see them again. Why? Because I suggested to use the atom elements for producing super beings. Beings of unthinkable strength and size. I was classed as a madman, a charlatan, outlawed in a world of science which previously honored me as a genius. 
Now here in this forsaken jungle hell, I have proven that I am all right. The following year, Wood began production on what would become his magnum opus, Plan 9 from Outer Space, originally titled Grave Robbers from Outer Space. My friend, can your heart stand the shocking facts about grave robbers from outer space? He had plans to include his friend and frequent collaborator, Bela Lugosi, but Lugosi passed away before primary production began. However, Ed Wood was able to shoot a few scenes with Lugosi before he died. The home they had so long shared together became a tomb, a sweet memory of her joyous living. The sky to which she had once looked was now only a covering for her dead body. It grew out of Wood having footage of Bela Lugosi that he had shot and feeling he could make a film around that. He sometimes had existing footage that he would hope later to build a film around. There was a project called Hellborn that never came to fruition, and some of the footage that was kind of like a JD juvenile delinquent thing, some of that footage was used in other Wood films from later years. And other filmmakers have done that. Fred Olin Ray shot footage of John Carradine. I've been waiting for you. I came as soon as I heard. Then you know. Yes. You must do exactly as I instructed. Not knowing exactly what he was going to use it in, but because he had the opportunity to do it, he had a creative mind can do something like that. God bless them. Bill says that Ed Wood's use of recycled material was central to his style. I was watching an Ed Wood documentary, and Vampira, who certainly knew Ed Wood well, described his work as decoupage, in the sense that he had pieces that interested him, and he would assemble those chunks and just sort of put a veneer over it to unite it. He thought in terms of individual set pieces, not so much in terms of the overall work. That cardboard headstone tipped over. This graveyard is obviously phony. Nobody will ever notice that. Filmmaking is not about the tiny details. It's about the big picture. I was just reading Wood's book, Hollywood Rat Race. And in that, he says that he generally did not have endings to his films when he started them. And he just kind of saw what would happen. Usually for budgetary reasons, Wood was also well known for padding out his movies with cheaply acquired stock footage. This is fantastic. What are you gonna do with it? Probably file it away and never see it again. Oh, it's such a waste. Why, if I had half the chance, I could make an entire movie using this stock footage. This is especially true in early movies like Glen or Glenda, where you might see the same shot of highway traffic multiple times. The world is a strange place to live in. All those cars, all going someplace, all caring humans which are carrying out their lives. The patchwork film has a long history in low budget and exploitation films. Going back to the silent and early sound era, 
where a film would be cut up and recontextualized and sold over again. So, of course, that's an important aspect of the Ed Wood style. One other thing you might notice about Wood's films is that he uses a rotating cast of friends and other trusted actors, almost like a Woodverse. Some were famous like Bela Lugosi or Vampira. Others were just friends. He got some of his regular crew together, along with colorful figures like John Bunny Breckenridge. I have need of your other ships elsewhere. Even though you have risen three of the Earth's dead, the plan is far from successful, and you, Eros, must prove it an operational success before more time, energy, ships, and your countrymen may be spent on it. And Paul Marco. Did you see that thing? Did you get it? We got it. What was it? It didn't fall. I fired every bullet I had. Lyle Talbot. Of course, you realize, Miss Gregor, that if your brother fails to show up for trial, you will forfeit the bail money. Inspector, Don is no criminal. Mm, well, that'll be established later. He was carrying a gun. There are much worse crimes. Carrying a gun can be a dangerous business. And of course, unique people like Vampira. What I need is a vampire cocktail to settle my nerves. It'll not only settle them, it will petrify them. Tor Johnson. Finding a mess like this ought to make anyone frightened. Have one of the boys take the guy and the girl back to town. You take charge. Okay, Inspector. What are you going to do? Look around a little. It's pretty dark out there. Once you get beyond the range of those lights, you won't be able to see your hand in front of your face. I will get one of the flashlights from the patrol car. Okay, be careful, Clay. I'm a big boy, not Johnny. So you had a mix of industry professionals mixed with non-professionals, mixed with people who were starting out in the industry. Oh, Lieutenant, maybe this doesn't mean much, but uh, Jamie and me found a grave that looks like it's been busted into. What? Where? Why, uh, why? Come on, man, out with it. We haven't got all day to waste. Oh, uh, just uh, over there beyond the crib. All right, show us away. So you get a lot of people who are interesting personalities who may not be professional actors and who may basically bring their unique persona. But many directors, Fellini among them, worked in that way and liked a good face or a good presence and didn't worry about the person's ability to perform Hamlet. That's something that uh, Ed Wood brought to his films. Family friend Bob Blackburn says Wood was less focused on who was right for the part and more focused on having a family of filmmaking friends. I don't think he was looking to get anything from these people besides their friendship. You know, if they wanted to act in one of his movies or they'd want to go out and have a drink, totally cool. You know, I don't think he was going, oh, there's Vampire, you know, I want her to be in my film. I don't think that came about that way. Ed loved to hire these older actors that had a name. Kenny Duncan, who was one of his favorite Western guys, or Tom Osborne, or some of these other people who Ed knew and who were, I I don't want to say they were down on their luck, but they were in between jobs, we'll put it that way. And if Ed could offer them a couple hundred bucks for one day's work or a couple days work, sure, why not? So he would go back to those people. Plan 9 was like a who's who of Wood's best friends and closest collaborators. According to Bill Shute, it's also where he took his wacky ideas and went in full force. You had the kitchen sink 
surrealism of Ed Wood really at full tilt. I want to ask you about your strange experience the other night when you saw the flying saucer. After that, the police brought me home. I hope I never see such a sight again. After you were forced to the ground by that blast of wind, was it a uh, hot or cold blast? It's kind of hard to explain. It wasn't hot, wasn't cold. It was just a terrific force. We, we couldn't get off the ground. The light blinded me so badly, I couldn't see a thing. We could only feel the pressure of the wind until it was gone. When the glare left us, we could see a glowing ball disappearing off in the distance. Which way? Toward the cemetery. The other most obvious characteristics of Wood's films are the low budget and the technical errors. And this becomes the most contentious element of Wood's work. I really truly love parts of his movies. I don't love the overall experience of watching them. My name is Catherine Coldiron, and I'm the author of a monograph on Plan 9 from Outer Space. Catherine's book looks at the numerous glaring technical problems in Plan 9, as well as explores why we enjoy watching, quote, bad movies. I asked her how she sees Ed Wood as a filmmaker. I think of him as an auteur because he's uh, one of those guys who has to write, direct, produce everything himself. What quality of auteur he is, is much more mysterious. And I think he's proof that auteurs exist at all levels of quality in the cinema. Where he is in terms of bad cinema is a little bit more difficult to estimate, I think. But he's, I would say, the most famous bad film auteur, probably in wider culture. I also asked Catherine what she sees as Ed Wood's shortcomings. Ed Wood doesn't know how to block at all. And by that I mean he'll sort of have characters coming onto the screen in the same direction and running in circles in the cemetery. And you, can, you don't really get a sense of where anyone is in space. I mean, he has some knowledge of how to do time in film in that the scene on the porch, he knows that you show the passage of time with a push in by the camera and then a pull out by the camera. He's aware of that, but he's not aware, for instance, that dissolving means that time passes and cutting means that time doesn't pass. So there's a scene where a car pulls up to the cemetery and it's clear to him that a certain period of time has passed between the last shot and this one, but because it's a cut instead of a dissolve, the audience doesn't realize it. But unless that bag of bones over there can reassemble itself, it's out of the running now. His lighting is very harsh and uniform across the film. It's always very bright. And that's actually, I think, better than a filmmaker who just turns the lights down and <laughs> you can't see anything. But it also means that day for night is a joke in Plan 9. <laughs> Then how about when the policeman arrived in daylight, but now it's suddenly night? What do you know? Haven't you heard of suspension of disbelief? And the way that he draws connections between things leaves a lot to be desired. I think that you're supposed to know that the aliens are involved with the cemetery business early in the film, but the film doesn't, like, very literally make those connections until way later. What plan will you follow now? Plan 9. 
It's been absolutely impossible to work through these Earth creatures. Their soul is too controlled. Plan 9. Ah, yes. Plan 9 deals with the resurrection of the dead. Long-distance electrode shot into the pineal pituitary glands of recent dead. So the plot is hard to follow because there's so much irrelevant stuff that's sort of jammed in there that the way that an American audience can normally follow a film is just not present in Plan 9 from Outer Space. Catherine says that for her, it's less to do with Wood's budgetary constraints. To me, it's his, <laughs> his incapacity to see when he should have done better. Like a movie maker like Roger Corman is always doing the best with the resources he has. And the resources he has fail him. There is meat here. Kill and go back. No. I came to find the truth or lie of the old stories. The ancient law. We came to hunt, not to destroy the word. But when Roger Corman is given a little bit of a budget, like he can do amazing things. That's where something practical is inhibiting you from making something good. Whereas with Wood, you could give him all the money in the world and he wouldn't be able to make a good movie. It's just not in his wheelhouse. So what sets him apart for me is not that he doesn't have the resources to do it and not that he doesn't have the time and energy to do it, but instead that he simply doesn't have the capacity to do it. Like, <laughs> if they flub a line, like, retake the scene. <laughs> now you can keep brings the total destruction of the entire universe served by our son. As you might guess, Bill Shute has a completely different opinion on Wood's style. Low-budget filmmaking and independent filmmaking, you have to bring to that, when you watch it, willing suspension of disbelief. People don't have a problem with that when they see a play. When you see a play, you know that's a painted backdrop. You know that you're not looking at a courtyard in New Orleans or Paris or something like that, and you can accept it. People who used to go to these kind of films, or even people who watch low-budget straight-to-video product today, you just accept that this is not a $100 million film and that things represent the reality of the situation and you don't have a problem with that. So I don't really focus on the things that people make fun of in Edward films because you see that in a wide variety of low-budget product. When someone's making a feature film for $20,000 or less, that comes with the territory. I think some of the people who pick on that sort of thing haven't seen a lot of low-budget product, and they don't know that that's what the marketplace was like, and that's what the typical product was like. I don't think that's an excuse when you're making work, especially if you're making a movie. Like, why would you give it anything less than your all? And something that I realized when I was researching is that most genre movies from the late 50s are crap. Like, most of them are not good. It was just a genre that sort of didn't have good quality films until late 60s, really. However, there are movies from that period that stand out, like The Incredible Shrinking Man. But even as I touched the dry, flaking crumbs of nourishment, it was as if my body had ceased to exist. There was no hunger, no longer the terrible fear of shrinking. And on the fly... I saw that funny-looking fly again. Uh oh Which hole we go to? Any. You saw the fly? Where? It's in a web. 
Bart is going to get it. By the bench, in the garden. You're sure? Oh, yes. Stay they have bad qualities, sure, and the the special effects are not great, and there are all these reasons why they're lesser. But the fact that movie makers could make those at the time means that the vast majority of movie makers who made impermanent art to turn a quick buck at the box office and then be forgotten forever, it's just no excuse. Like, you could still do a good job, and you chose not to. So perhaps... Whether one enjoys Wood is a matter of subjective preference, and whether you find his technical errors to be charming or distracting. But despite her criticisms, Catherine also enjoys some things about Wood's movies. Oh, I delight in how unstudied everything is. I love really, really bad performances in his movies, like the actress at the crypt. First his wife, then he. Tragic. Tell me something. Why was his wife buried in the ground and he sealed in a crypt? Something to do with family tradition, a superstition of some sort. Oh. She just, she can't even deliver the word oh properly. Like, I think that's super delightful and enjoyable. And the mechanism of enjoying bad movies is something that I've studied a lot, but I haven't quite figured out. And what that is when you look at something that's incompetent and you laugh, but you're not like actively making fun of it, when you're enjoying it because it's bad, but not thinking of it as something risible, something to, you know, tease. That is a mystery to me. What I think it is, is that bad movies are endlessly surprising. Because if you've seen any number of movies in your lifetime, you will recognize what a three-act structure is without having to be told what it is. You'll recognize that the peaks and valleys of mainstream commercial film are very engineered that everything about them, you know, from minute to minute, you know exactly what the experience is going to be, and you can broadly predict what's going to happen in the movie. Even if it has twists and turns, you can still figure it out. Bad movies just don't follow those rules, either because the filmmakers never learned those rules or because they don't really care. (laughs) The films are always going to show you something that you've never seen before. And even if that thing is incompetence, at least it's surprising. It's not the same thing over and over again. Catherine is getting into a phenomenon, largely pioneered by Ed Wood, that focuses on bad film as its own form of entertainment. You've probably heard of films that are, quote, so bad they're good. The other most notable example is Tommy Wiseau's The Room. Hi. Can I help you? Yeah, can I have a dozen red roses, please? Oh, hi, Johnny. I didn't know it was you. Here you go. That's me. How much is it? It'll be $18. Here you go. Keep the change. Hi, doggy. You're my favorite customer. Thanks a lot. Bye. I do not believe it's a schadenfreude instinct. I think that there are two distinct types of bad movie watchers, and there's the type that has schadenfreude and they want to laugh at movies, and then there's the type that is just genuinely delighted by bad movies. I don't understand the mechanism, even though I'm one of them, of people who love bad movies because they're delightful. I think what keeps us coming back to these movies, again, is just their ability to surprise and to be nothing like the pattern. It's a little bit like, do you want to listen to pop singers like Britney Spears and Taylor Swift, or do you want to listen to Radiohead? And like, maybe there's not a lot of difference between them in terms of career structure, but there's a huge amount of difference in how they pass in and out of your brain. It's much more difficult to listen to Joanna Newsom than it is to listen to Britney Spears. And there are moods for both, you know? 
There are nights when I want to watch a really good movie. And then there are nights when I want to watch a movie where I can turn my brain off. So I'll watch a Marvel movie. And then there are nights when I want to be challenged and also laugh. And so I'll watch Neil Breen, you know? I think that there are people who want very narrow artistic experiences, and then there are people who want a wide variety of them. And I think the latter category is much more interested in that film. Here's Bill Shute's opinion. I am a, a total opponent of the bad film phenomenon. I'm a champion of low-budget artists in many different genres. If you take the small labels of the 1950s and 60s, there would be a lot of things that were considered technical flaws as opposed to something recorded in L.A. by the Wrecking Crew that was professional in every way. But you had people with enormous creativity and limited budgets trying to capture what was in their mind, trying to capture the vision that they had with the limited technical facilities that were available and the limited funds that were available to them. I've gone to showings in Austin of low-budget horror films, indie films of all sorts, and there's always some people in the audience who are making fun of the filmmaker and pointing their fingers at the kind of things you see in low-budget films. And to me, as I said earlier, on some level, it's I don't think they've seen a lot of those films to know that that is not uncommon. But there's also a kind of elitism that I find kind of offensive. Anyone who's worked in the arts, as I have, with limited money and limited technical facilities, you do what you can to kind of fake an effect. I grew up during the punk rock era, and the kind of cut-up Xerox aesthetic of punk growing out of you know Warhol, William Burroughs, that sort of thing, was also a way of using very minimal budgets and kitchen sink abilities to create something that was transcendent because you didn't have access to the technology. So when I see a film of that sort from an independent filmmaker, whether it be Ed Wood or Bill Rebane or Larry Buchanan, I'm just amazed at what they can do on such a low budget. I just take my hat off to that kind of inventiveness and creativity. As far as, quote, bad film creators go, Catherine believes there's one positive quality that sets Ed Wood apart. Ed Wood's sincerity is part of what makes his films fun to watch instead of unfun to watch. For instance, the output of The Asylum, that they made Sharknado and like a bunch of movies like that. I know you're scared. I'm scared too. They're sharks, they're scary. No one wants to get eaten. But I've been eaten. And I'm here to tell you, it takes a lot more than that to bring a good man down. Those films are not as much fun to watch for me because they're very cynical. They think that they're laughing at themselves, but they're actually not. They're more making cynical trash. What's charming about Ed Wood is that he has the love, but he has no skill. He has the will to make a film, but he doesn't have the talent to make a film. It's kind of like watching little bitty kids play soccer, trying to kind of kick the ball around the field, but they don't have the capacity in their arms and legs to have that kind of coordination. So watching them is kind of cute because they're trying really hard, but their bodies are failing them, and Wood's talent 
fails him. And that's sweet, you know, it's sad a little bit, but also kind of lovely to witness. So between Catherine and Bill, we have two very different opinions on the matter. But before we move on, I want to share one more approach. Here's family friend Bob Blackburn again. I'm right down the middle of this, to be honest with you. There was a book, The Cinematic Misadventures of Ed Wood, I think it was, where the guy took a very scholarly approach to all Ed's films, and I went, whoa, you're really reading some stuff in there that I just don't see or whatever. But I appreciated the fact that somebody took Ed that seriously to actually write it. Now, I don't know, but I would assume that in some film schools, Ed Wood is taught. Maybe at UCLA Film School or USC Film School. There's a class in So Bad It's Good. I would hope. The So Bad It's Good thing, I kind of shake my head at it. I don't see it. Ed didn't study film. He didn't go to USC Film School. He didn't apprentice for a famous film director. Even though he may have worked at Universal, he was like in the prop department, you know. He was smitten with movies, so his knowledge was from what he saw and from people he met, people he talked to, and trial and error. If you see his very early things like Crossroads Avenger, or Crossroads of Laredo, or any of the, the TV things, the cardboard, very short coffin, things of that nature, or people getting off a horse on the wrong side, he wasn't a technician at all. It's easy to laugh at the mistakes, but you have to kind of understand why there are the mistakes, you know. And again, there's other people that were learning how to make movies as they were making them. You know, there's always going to be those kind of people. For better or worse, Plan 9 from Outer Space was Ed Wood's boldest, most artistic statement. But it was far from the end of his career. Ed Wood would go on to make six more movies throughout the 1960s. And he also wrote dozens of novels, short stories, and other adult content. On the next episode of Ephemeral, we're going to dig into Ed's later work and tell the story of his final years. And we'll talk about Wood's cult revival, the eventual Tim Burton biopic, and how he reached new heights of fame after his death. This episode of Ephemeral was written and produced by Trevor Young, with producers Max and Alex Williams. Bill Shute is a writer and professor of English at San Antonio College. He also wrote the introduction for the new book of posthumously released essays by Ed Wood, When the Topic is Sex. Bob Blackburn is a family friend of the Woods, who edited and compiled the stories for When the Topic is Sex, which you can find on Bear Manor Media's website, or wherever books are sold. And Catherine Coldiron is author of the book Plan 9 from Outer Space. See more of her work at kcoldiron.com. We'll be back in two weeks with part two of our dive into Ed Wood. In the meantime, find links to these and more on our website, ephemeral.show. And while you're there, check out my conversation with movie crush host Chuck Bryant about the 1994 Tim Burton biopic, Ed Wood. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. <laughs>